0: questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. And Happy New Year also, because it's a new year. And I think even though if you guys have been following me for any amount of time, you know that I don't really enjoy or like or support New Year's resolutions. But I do kind of like the the mind shift, or at least the perspective change where you can say to yourself, well, you know what? It's a new year. And I think sometimes it's nice to be like, it's a new chapter. I'm like opening a new a new thing and like starting new. And sometimes that can feel very freeing and maybe help us let go of things from our past we've been holding on to because we're like, hey, it's new. It's fresh. I can start fresh. And I think that's sometimes really nice. And so I try to personally lean into that and then think about things that I want for this year. Small, small things like I would like to, um, I want to work on The Author's Way. It's a book or the artist's way, sorry, not author's way, the artist's way. It's a book that I have been um, wanting to get into for a long time. And my father-in-law got it for me for Christmas. And so I'm really just wanting to dig into that. And so I'm like, I want to make more time for that. That's like something that I want to do. And so each and every, you know, week, I'm going to try to set some goals. I know it's like a daily thing, but you know, for me, I'm going to do what I can and I'm going to try to make some time. So I don't know if you feel like it, let me know in those comments, some of the things that you want to try to make time for, because instead of the old New Year's resolutions of like, I want to lose weight and I want to change my entire life. I feel like people make these huge, I don't know, goals and and it's almost like we set ourselves up for failure. And so if you have some small things you'd like to do or things that you'd like to change for yourself this year, feel free to let us know in those comments down below so we can get excited with you. Now, without further ado, today we have nine questions and let's just jump right into that first one. Now, the first question says, Hey, Katie, why is accepting any sort of praise or compliments so hard for me to do? I genuinely do appreciate them, but I don't know if that's if it's that I don't believe they are true and don't deserve it, or if I just don't like the attention on me but I get so uncomfortable when it happens and then we'll just blow it off like it's nothing. I know I should be thankful for the compliment or praise and be happy and proud of the fact that I'm getting them, but I never seem to be able to let myself accept them. Am I just being too hard on myself? Excuse me. So this is a great question. And this is something that a lot of us struggle with and it can come from a lot of different places, but the most common is that we don't believe what's being said And maybe have never had someone in our life say them in an authentic way. And when I say someone, I don't just mean like random people like strangers or colleagues or people that we know just barely. I'm talking from real important people. People like our mothers, our fathers, our sisters, our brothers, our best friends, our loved ones, the people that we're in romantic relationships with, any of that. If we haven't heard, you're amazing, I love you, or any of those things ever, in our life, from someone who's actually important, then when someone just peripherally in our life says it to us, we're like, "Mm, no, you know, and we like completely negate it. It can feel uncomfortable because we're not even used to receiving those kinds of compliments. And so we can, you know, get awkward, uncomfortable, and then be like, absolutely not. I do not agree. And that's, that's usually the most common. But again, everybody's different. There's lots of reasons that this can happen. And the second, and it... I want also to just acknowledge the fact that each of these are almost tied together in a way. They have like a common thread, but I'll get to that at the end. Now, the second reason I find this happens and the, why this is so common is because of how nastily we talk to ourselves. And what I mean by that is if I'm talking shit to myself all day, every day, then when, I don't know, Joe Schmo comes into my life, it's like, oh, you, you're so beautiful, or that you're so good at that, or that's so amazing, you're so smart, whatever the compliment is. I have been talking shit to myself all day long about how dumb, lazy, ugly, whatever I am, that when that is said to me, I'm like, no. And I get uncomfortable, and then I'm like, I don't have the facts to support that. That must be a lie, right? And push it off. Now, you can see that both of the things that I mentioned, meaning never hearing it from anyone who was important in our life before and we've talked such shit to ourselves you can see how those are connected that's why I said there's like this thread that runs through which I would what I mean by that is if we grew up in a household where we never received praise or affection or any kind of just loving conversations about who we are and what we're doing then we could this is this thread live a life where we talk shit to ourselves too Because how we were raised in like the first few years of our life can really affect the conversation that we have with ourselves, for better or for worse. And so that's why I said these are like connected and there's like this thread that runs through is because one could potentially or most likely lead to the other, if that makes sense. Now, those are the main two reasons. Um, Another could just be that because this is such a foreign conversation, like no one ever has going back to like that original reason, right? No one in our life has ever said that anything nice about us. Then when someone does that, it just goes against who we believe we are. And that's what causes the discomfort, right? Because it's almost like we have uh, almost been gaslit or it's like cognitive dissonance, meaning that like we have this certain way of believing about ourselves, right? Like I'm stupid, I'm ugly, I'm not good enough, or whatever you've been told or whatever you believe, whatever you tell yourself, right? It's just a ball of trash. And that's what we believe about ourselves. And then we go out into the world and someone tells us something that's completely different. They're like, oh my God, you're so good at that. Wow. You're so talented. That's amazing. You're so beautiful or you're so intelligent or you're so good with people or whatever. And those things just cannot coexist. We're like, well, I know I'm a trash monster, but this person seems to think I'm not. It, Like I said, it's almost like being gaslit or like, you know, having these two Opposing beliefs happening simultaneously. And so it's really uncomfortable. And then in that moment, we have to kind of like choose, well, which one am I going to follow and like try to support with evidence? And of course, we go back to the one that we've been doing for the longest, meaning the one that we've been telling ourselves for, you know, for our whole life. So the nasty one, usually, usually, not all the time, but usually. So that's kind of why that's happening. I don't think it's that you're being too, well, you are kind of being too hard on yourself, but I think it's more about. Deeply rooted beliefs or conversations that we're having with ourselves every day, all day, that is really causing this issue. Now, there's a comment on this, and it says, Same here. Though I am getting better at it because I'm learning to understand that I am worthy and I too matter. Yay, I love to hear that. Another thing in this topic is why is it hard for me to give compliments? It's hard for me to express my love or make someone feel good on the outside, but when I do, I cringe. Thank you. and that was just thanking me, sorry, that was kind of an awkward, I did, the, the cadence was wrong in that when I read that question. Um, I thought this was really interesting that it's, we're getting better at receiving them, but we can't give them. And again, going back to like how we were raised, my, my hypothesis would be that you've never seen someone do that in a real loving and not sarcastic or potentially malicious way, right? Like trying to get you. Um, Therefore, doing it makes you want to cringe because you think, well, I must be lying. This must not be authentic. I don't even know how to act when when I do this. Or it's almost like we don't even know what to do. We don't even know how to do that naturally because it's so unnatural to us because we've never been around it. Does that make sense? So it's almost like if we're, it's like you're learning something new and your reaction is the only reaction you've ever had to something like this. Therefore... You're trying to like learn a new way to react. And so I encourage you just to pay attention and to consider the compliments you're giving. And even when you're giving them and you kind of want to cringe, I want you to think to yourself, you know, I'm doing this because it's true and because I know how important it is for people to hear how appreciated they are right? So we still have like this mantra we repeat, and it will get easier. But again, my assumption or my hypothesis is that we just don't even know how to do that because no one in our life has ever been loving and caring and offered that kind of support, uh, verbal support, really, right? And words of affirmation. Therefore, when we do it, we're like, Ugh, it just feels wrong. It's like unnatural because we haven't watched someone do it. We haven't learned. We haven't done it a lot ourselves. It's like, it's new. So give yourself some time to get comfortable with it. It's okay if it takes time. It's okay to be a little uncomfortable and cringy for a while. You'll come out of it, okay? Let's move on to question number two. This question says, Hello, Katie. Is there a way to tell the difference between real memories and things imagined in our dreams? Hmm. Sometimes I need to imagine bad things happening to me to fall asleep. I don't want these things to actually happen, but sometimes I go on to have nightmares that mix these imaginary scenarios with real people and places from my memories. I feel awful for imagining that someone I know would do something terrible to me, and I'm 99% sure that I made these things up, but is there a way to tell for sure? Thank you so much. Had to get a drink of water, sorry. Now, the main way... There's a, the only real way to tell if something is a memory or if it's something that you made up is by asking people that are involved. And I know that might be uncomfortable because you're having these crazy scenarios, but if you, let's say I was having a nightmare or maybe a real memory, couldn't remember, of my brother and I being... I don't know, chased or uh, abused by my uncle or something, let's say. And this didn't happen, by the way. I'm just making up a scenario. So let's say that, that I thought that happened. And I swore to God my brother and I were like racing through the house and then hiding in a cupboard. And I remember it so vividly kind of thing. And I'm like, is it real or did I make it up? I would ask my brother. I would say, hey, Nick, you know, I had this weird memory. And I don't know if it's even a memory, if it's a dream. He'd be like, that has never happened to us. I don't know what you're talking about, right? You need to ask someone to kind of check your facts because unfortunately when we've confused reality with dreams for so long or repeatedly, it can be really difficult for us on our own to tease it out. Another way to go about this would be to talk it out with a therapist and do some fact-checking yourself. Now, the... That can again, it can be tricky because we're we're going to be like questioning our own memory of events or our own sanity, kind of as we dig through it. But even talking it out with someone and like parsing out the little bits of facts that we have can sometimes reveal itself and help us see, like, oh, no, that was, that's not a real memory, that's a dream, or, or that is a real memory, not a dream, um, or this comp- portion is real, and the rest was kind of fabricated. You know, it could help us tease that out going slowly through them little by little. But something that I would encourage you to do is to try to find new ways to fall asleep, because imagining bad things happening to you to fall asleep is actually something that I... I would see as kind of a red flag in therapy where I'd, if you were telling me this and you were my patient, I would I would really want to dive into that and figure out why that is because, I, not to jump to conclusions, but my hypothesis would be that bad things have happened to you a lot in your life and therefore having bad things happen is very comforting and something that you seek out in order to self soothe and fall asleep. Now, there was a comment on this that said, I tend to imagine bad things to fall asleep to too. As an add-on, can an imagined situation be traumatic? In essence, can I traumatize myself? I can vividly imagine scenarios in which would make me enter a freeze state, which is why I imagine them in the first place, to replace tossing and turning and restlessness. And another person said, um, well, let's get into this one first because I don't want to get too convoluted. Now, Yes, imagined situations can be traumatic because of the way that we perceive them and how it's experienced by us. Now, I would assume, and this is kind of based with some of my patients, I didn't have this exact scenario, but I have had patients who thought something happened to them that we learned later didn't, and it was kind of them trying to make sense of another situation, if that is even clear, like... We were trying to um, talk through a traumatizing situation and in doing so realized that a part of it that she had attached as like being the most traumatic and most upsetting actually wasn't what happened. It was something else that she was like trying to replace with this other scenario, if that makes sense. It was like that was easier for her to tolerate. And so what I would imagine would happen based on my own you know, experience with my other patients, is that, yes, an imagined situation can be traumatic. However, when we start working through it in therapy, it will easily be dealt with, boom, because we didn't actually go through it. But I don't want to dismiss or minimize the effects of repeatedly traumatizing ourselves by talking through something like that and like, reliving it over and over you know how we do that with flashbacks and even telling ourselves the story of the trauma and even talking about it with a therapist and friends that act can in and of itself be traumatizing and even if we find out that that situation or thing that happened the scenario we had made up was in fact made up that doesn't make the experience of talking it through and reliving it in flashbacks it doesn't make that go away does that make sense and so I think it will be more easily resolved, but that doesn't mean that we won't still potentially feel the effects of PTSD, okay? Now there was another comment on this and it said, same here, when I was younger though, but now this image I have, and I say image because I'm not sure if it's dreamed or real, but it's very detailed. However, the perspective that I see from this, oh, I see this is from a crib. So I wonder if it's an actual memory. I was adopted and had to stay with foster parents and the lady was washing dishes and I see her. As I start to wake from my nap, my baby sounds get her attention and she stops what she's doing and comes to pick me up. She talks to me, not in English and not in Spanish, says I was adopted internationally from Colombia to the U.S. And sorry if you hear my dog barking. She's just being very spirited. Um, she dances around the room and as I continue my baby sounds, she keeps talking. Come to find out the letters uh, from letters my adopted parents were given that a family from Europe and another from Portugal had fostered me. The description of the lady I saw was in this memory, long salt and pepper hair with green eyes, and it sounds like she might be from Portugal. This image stuck in my brain, and I wish I could draw it. Why doesn't it go away like other memories or dreams? Now, this sounds to me like an actual memory, and the reason that it's not going away is because it was real. And I would assume during that time in your life, being kind of passed around as a young child, it was traumatic. And these were big, it's a big deal. Even if it wasn't traumatic, it wasn't scary. It was still a life altering event, right? When we're children, especially that young, like pre-verbal, right before we speak or before, you know, we can walk on our own, we're completely dependent upon our caregivers for our life. Without them, we could not survive. And so being passed from one person to the other, potentially, you know, or switching really, who we're going to depend on for survival is really stressful and overwhelming and probably why those memories are so deeply formed, even though we know that most long-term memories don't form until around the age of five. We can have these younger uh, pre-verbal memories because of the situation that was taking place and because it was so scary or overwhelming, or maybe we were just stressed out as a baby. And so all of that comes together to help us form and retain that really what what your, your baby self would call a very pivotal time and a very stressful or maybe overwhelming time. And so the, those memories, some of them can be just like locked in. And so that's really why they don't go away because it was such a life-altering time and a, maybe a life-altering event. And it doesn't mean that she wasn't lovely and that your foster families weren't amazing and that people didn't care for you. It was the fact that you were getting moved around, and we, we know how important now um, attachment within that first year of life is. And if we're being passed from caregiver to caregiver, it's going to be hard for us to form a secure attachment. Not impossible, but it's going to be difficult. And we could feel like we don't know who we can count on and which one's going to take care of us, right? It can be really stressful. And so I believe that that would be be why those that image or those little clip of a memory is stuck in your brain. Now, the final comment on this says, Can you have pre-verbal memories? It's like you read my mind. Yes, you can. They're not incredibly common. It's not like everybody's going to have a memory of themselves as a baby or a child that couldn't speak. But a lot of people do. Um, A couple examples. I had a patient who struggled really terribly with anxiety. And he even remembered being a child grabbing onto the carpet. um, Like it was just on his tummy. Like a little probably let's say six to nine months old holding onto that carpet and what he thought that was, was his first panic attack. And so we can have these little blips of pre-verbal memories. Again, in my experience, I'd love to hear your take too. If you have a different experience in this, I would love to hear it. But I find that people who have these memories pre, not even just pre-verbal, but pre five, four or five years old, which is when we usually form our first long-term memories. When we have memories back then, when we were just little, little tots, little peas in a pod, um, it's because it was something scary or traumatic or uh, overwhelming or stress inducing or something. It was just like, it was a lot was going on and that's why we have that memory because we were so overwhelmed. And, but yes, you can just not everybody does. I mean, it's usually because of some intense event. Like I actually even have a friend whose parents, her, they moved when she was really little, they moved a lot and her family moved like internationally. I think it was from Korea, back to the States or from the States to Korea. And she was like three. And she remembers some of that. And I think it's because that was like, it was a lot, right? You were like moving house when you were little and people spoke a language that you don't understand. It, I think all of that was was really overwhelming to her system and maybe traumatic, maybe not. I, she hasn't talked about it like it was traumatic, but it could have been for her or her brother. And that's why she has that memory because it was, it was a lot. Okay, let's move on to question number three. And this question says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. says, can you talk about passive suicidal ideation? I'll dig into what that means in just a minute also. says, how is it that I encourage or support the fight to live for others, but I can't seem to provide that same thought for me? Ooh, that's a good question. I just recently lost an immediate family member back in August due to cancer, and I feel like a horrible person to admit, but at times I'm envious of those no longer here having to deal with the day-to-day struggles and pain. But then I think about those still here and the thought of causing them more pain breaks my heart even more. It's like there's no fear of death, but no real desire to live other than wanting to be the cause or not wanting to be the cause of another's pain. I don't know if any of this makes any sense. I'm in therapy and taking medication and thank you for what you do. Of course. Now, okay. Passive suicidal ideation is when It's kind of what this person's describing. We don't have any plans to take our own life. We're not actively suicidal, meaning I'm not putting together a plan. I'm not gathering the means to do it. I don't have a deadline or a timeline. I don't have any of that. It's just kind of out there in in the ether, in my head. Sometimes I think, hmm... What's life worth living, right? Maybe I will just take my own life today. We can have some thoughts like that. But again, no plan, no actual measures are going to be taken. It's like these thoughts just flutter through. And they can hang around a lot. We can have them all the time. Um, We can have them off and on. It's just very passive, and passive doesn't mean not a big deal. It just means not active, which means we don't have to like sound the alarm. Like as a therapist, I don't have to consider maybe I have to fifty one fifty you or put you in the hospital, and so or I have to call your family, your friends, or someone to check in on you. These are more manageable and something that I, I as a therapist, am just more curious about because I want to understand where they're coming from, why they're here, when they've been here before, and how often they happen or how long do they usually last? And the reason that we can, so that's what passive suicidal ideation is. Now, the question about how or why we can support others but then can't provide the same support for ourselves is because it's really hard for us to apply that external care internally. And the reasons for that is because of how nastily we talk to ourselves and the shit we say day in and day out. And we can look out at other people. We have a different perspective, right? We're so compassionate and understanding for others, especially those of us who are struggling with a mental illness. We look out at other people. and We're like, oh, my God, they're doing so great. Look at them working so hard. That's why our community is beautiful, because so many of you are incredibly supportive, loving, and compassionate towards one another, because you know what it's like, at least a little bit, and you look out, and you're like, wow, they're trying so hard. Yes, good, good for you. And we can feel so supportive and loving and compassionate and all that. Then we look inside, and we're like, you fucking trash monster. What's wrong with you? You're so lazy. You're this therapy's moving so slow. You're so stupid. How come you can't get your shit together? Why is this so hard? This shouldn't be so hard, right? We do all this like shit talking all the time. That when we even if we even attempt to turn that compassion inward, we're like. Mm absolutely not. That's bullshit. I don't know that to be true. I only know, you know, my own story of what I've been saying to be true. And so that's why it's really hard for us to offer that same support to ourselves that we offer to others. It's just different. The relationship that we have with ourselves is different. And I encourage you to work on that relationship with yourself. Notice what you say to yourself and use some bridge statements or even, you know, just some fact checking to to minimize the effect of those nasty thoughts and nasty conversations. But until we do that, we're not going to be able to offer ourselves that same compassion and love and support. And, okay, I think, I think that's all of the questions in that first portion. We do have some comments below this, but I want to make sure. Um, okay, and you're taking medication. That's good. And in therapy, um, I hope you let your therapist know that you're having passive suicidal thoughts I know that there's a lot of fear out there about telling your therapist if you have such thoughts. The important thing is, if it's passive and there's no, no means to do it, no plan, no deadline, nothing, let them know that. That's what's important. That's what they're going to want to know. Because again, if it's active and we have those things in place, then as a therapist or any other mental health professional, psychologist, counselor, psychiatrist, whoever, we're legally bound to take some action. And some people can get scared that they're not going to take enough action and then we're going to act on it. And if that happens on our watch, as a licensed mental health professional, we can lose our license or be placed on suspension while they do, you know, investigate what took place or your family can sue us. And there's a lot of things that can happen. And that's why, um, you know, people will put us in the hospital or 5150 us, or it's called being, I think it's called being sectioned or sanctioned in the UK and Australia and stuff. But anyway, that's why people do take those measures and take those steps is really to protect protect you from yourself and to protect us from getting our license potentially taken away. And then we can't you know work anymore and that's pretty terrible too. So that's why, but it's really important to tell your therapist that this is happening so they can help you with it because you should, and I have a video about this, um, you should look into creating a safety plan because when we're not, actively suicidal, that's the time to do it. And so putting that together can sometimes help you maybe hopefully come up with other reasons to stay alive versus I just don't want to cause others more pain. Sometimes I have my patients put together lists of things that they would like to do. And I know depression can snuff that out, but are there things that you've always just thought you would see or events that you would attend? Like, let's say you have a sibling or I don't know, even a daughter or son or whoever, you want to see them graduate from high school or college or get married or move away or do something, you know, like wanting to see something happen, wanting to get a dog. I've always wanted to go to Hawaii or I've always wanted to whatever. Are there things that you've always wanted to do? Put that on your list. Those are things that can sometimes help us stay present, stay motivated and keep living versus, you know, feeling like we're just surviving. Now, there was a comment on this that says, as a follow-up, I've noticed many therapists do not or will not work with clients with a history of suicide or those who deal with any form of suicidal ideation, passive or not. Do you know why that is? I had been on the search for a therapist for three years, but I couldn't find one who would stick it out with me more than two weeks once I discussed my suicide history. I've met with around 15 therapists and finally found one who will see me. Hooray! How can we advocate for more people like myself to get the treatment that we deserve? We do deserve treatment despite being told otherwise. Thanks for all that you do. It's kind of like what I just talked about. I think a lot of uh, mental health professionals worry about losing their license. Now I know that's not a good enough reason and I personally don't subscribe to that. I, You guys know I definitely have had a, my fill of patients who struggle with passive or active suicidal thoughts I don't it's not that I don't take them seriously because some of my colleagues will tell me that I'm not taking them seriously by not putting them in the hospital or making more uh taking more steps to protect them but I believe sometimes those steps can be do more damage than actually helping them it's like do more harm than good and so I prefer to work with them on a safety plan, do check-ins, maybe we increase our sessions, or maybe I refer them out to a treatment center because they need a higher level of care or whatever. But I think it's that fear that something can happen and we can lose our licenses or be sued or be on suspension, meaning cannot practice while that takes place. And th- that's, that's the tricky part about our systems of care and why healthcare as a whole is just so complicated is I understand why... As clinicians, we need to be held responsible in protecting our patients from themselves, right? I get that. Makes sense. If I have a patient who's actively suicidal, I should do something about that and I should be held to do that. However, in the strictness of how we are held to report or to uh, 5150 or to check up on them, like all the steps we're supposed to take because of that, then a lot of clinicians won't see people with, that's why a lot of borderline personality disorder patients struggle to find a therapist. Also because suicidal ideation and attempts are kind of not part of BPD all the time, but very very common. I think that's why I've dealt with it so much and why maybe I have a different perspective than other clinicians. But it's the fear of losing our license and our ability to not only help more people, but also pay for our life, right? It's it, You're going to take away our ability to earn an income and support ourselves. And then what do we do, right? Oh my God, I can't pr- practice. Let's say it, they find you that, that you were negligent or didn't do what you're supposed to do. Then you could lose your license and you're like, well, fuck, now what do I do? And that's the tricky part. And it kind of sucks because I can see both sides. And, and I still don't act in the way that I think a lot of like law and ethics professor people would want me to because I, I feel like hospitalizations more often than not, not all the time, but more often than not do more harm than good. And so I don't like to take that step if I don't have to. But anyway, I could really talk about that a lot. And it's very frustrating. And I think that's why... That's why, that would be my assumption. And I feel like things need to change so that we can more easily get the help that we need and people aren't afraid to help us, right? It's like the therapists are afraid to help you because they could potentially, in helping you, harm themselves. Okay, now there was another comment on this says, what is it if there are really difficult times where it feels like life pressure gets so much, where maybe a crossroads for others for, wait, so much where maybe a crossroads for others, for self in, oh, for suicidal ideation, but they, oh, but that doesn't just happen more internal turmoil that lately there have been three times where another string part of me. Okay. Sorry. the, The, I think there's just some like typos and stuff in here and I'm trying to make sense of it. So I guess it's like, what if there are just some difficult times that you feel like life pressure is just too much? And so you get to come to a crossroads where you feel like, you know, um, maybe like there's suicidal ideation that comes up, but then, you know, it's just more internal turmoil because nothing happens. You don't take any action. Thank God. Um, it's like, you just want to keep walking. So it's like this passive thought. I think the, the truth is that there are going to be difficult times in our life and we're all going to unfortunately have to go through them. My advice for everybody out there who may be struggling with any kind of suicidal ideation, whether it's around right now or not, know that it does get better and building up our resilience. So if we're in it and we feel like we have very active suicidal thoughts, I cannot encourage you enough. Number one, reach out for support, whatever format, crisis text line, therapist, psychiatrist, treatment team, hospital, whatever. Also, basic self-care things. I want to make sure that you're showering at least two to three times a week. Have you eaten in the last three to four hours? Have you drank enough water? I know that those things, have you taken your prescribed medication in the way that it was prescribed? Are you feeling ill? Have you taken care of any illness? Like... I know those things are things that we think like, well, everybody should just be doing that. Um, No, not when we're depressed or overly anxious or struggling with a mental illness to the point where we just feel like we can't do anything, right? I think that it's important that we do the basic things to care for ourselves so that we feel somewhat okay and we have a little bit of resilience to manage what could happen that day or that moment. And so doing those basic self-care things like, you know, medication or eating, drinking water. Getting enough sleep is another one that's really important. Showering regularly. All of those things will help us be better able to weather life storms, even if it's just a little bit more, like incrementally. If it's like 2% more, I'll take it. Now, for those of us who have more passive suicidal ideation, that's when we really need to do, obviously, those basic things I just mentioned, but also, you know, put together that safety plan. Uh, Put together a a support team of people who really get it. This might be other people in our online community. This might be um, a group therapy session. This might be other friends in your life or family. Or maybe it's just your treatment team, like your psychiatrist and your therapist, whoever or whatever. We need to get you some support. Start building up that resilience, doing some things that feel good for us each and every day so that, again, we're like banking our resilience. So we are building up this bank account so that if we have to draw on it later, when life inevitably turns to shit off and on for almost everybody, then we have that to fall back into. And we can pull from that because we have that like built up resource and that built up ability to like weather that storm. And so that's really what we can do because life can be shitty Bad times are going to happen. I wish I could tell you that they wouldn't and that they won't. And if we do certain amounts of things, they won't happen. But I can tell you this, that if we build up that resilience, even though life throws lemons our way, we're better able to dodge and manage and not be overwhelmed by it and just keep going forward and go right through it. And yes, it's stressful. Yes, we can feel overwhelmed, but it won't completely derail us. And we won't think of taking our own life or ending it all because we know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel because we can see it because we planned for this. Does that make sense? I hope so. And that's why I talk so often about coping skills and resources and building those up. What I'm really trying to get you to do is just build up that resilience, build up your ability to to ride the waves of life and not drown. And I think the more time we can spend doing that, the better off we all would be. Okay, let's move on to question number four. This question says, Hi, Katie, I've always wanted to be a therapist or a counselor but I have one big issue with that. I get frustrated when people don't see what's right in front of them, <laughs> which is basically what therapy is all about. It's true. Gently nudging someone in the right direction so they can figure it out on their own, but instead I just want to shake some sense into them. How do you do it? Is this something you had to learn as a therapist or are you naturally patient with people who take forever to see something that you think is completely obvious? I don't know if therapy can help me with this frustration or if I should just not follow my dream because that's a huge issue that I may not be able to overcome. I can't be a therapist if I get impatient with my patients. I love this question. Now, I'm human. So yes, I do get frustrated, but it's all internal. I try my best to never let that show. I do, however, I will. Maybe it's because some part of me I'm a a softer therapist, but there's definitely a part of me that's very tough love. And when a patient is lying to me about what they're doing, and I find out they're doing way worse than they are, maybe because they brought their spouse or their parent or somebody, a roommate in to a session once, and I realize that they're not really doing their homework, or, oh, they were lying about this, that, or the other. Um, I can get frustrated with that, and I will say something. I will say something to the effect, because it's not really about me. That's the thing. And I think maybe what you're forgetting or maybe what you're not aware of is being a therapist is very, very different than being a friend to someone or being a, a family member or any other relationship you've ever had. Being a therapist is very different because our perspective is different. It's not about you. They don't know anything about you. Anything that you don't want them to know, they don't know. And it's just a different dynamic. And so if I have a patient the example that I was going with is like, if they kept lying to me and I found out in session, I would say, you realize that when you lie and you don't tell me the truth, that it only hinders your progress and harms yourself. This doesn't hurt me in any way. It just wastes your time and money. And in order for me to help you, you you're going to have to trust me a little bit with some information versus telling me what you think I want to hear because that doesn't actually help anything, right? And so you're coming at things from a different perspective. It's not a, I'm angry. As a therapist, like, I don't get angry with my patients. It's more about the fact that, like, them not doing what's best for them is hurting them. And I will bring their awareness to that and, like, shine a light on it and be like, hey, you're doing this, and it's kind of fucking things up for you. And it's, I feel like that's my job is to make them aware of patterns because the thing, the truth is, this uh, lying or manipulating or pretending things are different or trying to do just what they think I want to hear or see is a pattern that they have in other parts of their life, I would assume, probably with the relationship with their parents and their spouse or whoever. They're probably doing that in a lot of relationships. And so it's important as a therapist to draw their awareness to it. And then I always ask, are there other places in your life where you feel like you do or you tell someone what you think they want to hear versus doing what's best for you or being honest about where you're at. And that's what I would that's kind of the push, right? That's like the tough love, acknowledgement, challenge, you know. There's their homework. Now, I don't want to get too in the weeds on that, but then getting frustrated if they don't see what's right in front of them. The thing about being a therapist is chances are I I don't know if I've I don't think I've done this before, but I know I know what colleagues of mine have. When early on in our careers, it's it's very common for a therapist to tell someone what's right in front of them. Be like, don't you see, you know, you always date these guys who don't, they treat you just like your father did or something, right? You see a pattern so clearly. You're like, don't you see? And we call it out. When that happens, nine times out of 10, a patient gets very upset, will maybe even yell at you and tell you that you don't even know how dare you say that. You don't know their father. You don't know the situation. They can get really defensive and sometimes leave and never come back. And so even if you're frustrated and you think, no shit, Sherlock, it's right in front of you. Jesus Christ, it's right here. Can't you see it? Hello, do it, blah, blah. We get very frustrated. You know that acting out of that is only going to cause your patient more pain. Therefore, you'll hold it back. And you'll learn how to navigate that, when to push more, when to ask for uh, more information or to challenge a pattern or a thought that you see. Because having that information and being able to see those things is what actually makes you a good therapist. It means that you're able to acknowledge those patterns or uh, behavioral components or whatever you're seeing. You're able to see it in the office. And that's when you can use that to help them discover it too. And it's like an art form. You get really creative at asking the right questions or challenging them in the right way until they, maybe months later, will come around to that realization and be like, holy shit. And they're, they'll have that aha moment. And you would be like, yep, yep. And then I can't tell you how many times I have patients be like, did you realize that? And I'll say, yep, I did. And they're like, how, how long ago? And I'll, I'll be honest. I'll be like, mm, about a year ago. And they're like, seriously? Why didn't you tell me? And my answer is always the same because you weren't ready to hear it and that's the truth and being a good therapist is isn't about you not being frustrated or being human or being able to see things quick you know it's more about the fact that you can notice those things and you can recognize that they're not ready to hear it and you wait until they are and there are times when I know a patient has realized it and they don't say anything and I will challenge that and that might be a time when I kind of show my hand and say, hey, I know you're realizing this. You've mentioned it in some way or another. Is there a reason you're not able to talk about it right now? And so there there can be those kinds of times too. But long story short, as you learn more about being a therapist and a counselor, I think you're going to be great. We all can feel frustrated, but just, just know that you'll recognize, you'll get into the that feeling and you'll have your own like kind of craft to how you do therapy and how you work with your patients and you'll know when they're ready and you'll know when they're not and you'll recognize that you calling something out actually isn't helpful and it can be hindering or harmful instead and as soon as you can kind of acknowledge that or realize that that urge to 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 call it out and get frustrated will go away i hope that makes sense i don't know if it does i'm sorry if it doesn't it's a great question and that's just kind of the process Okay, I hope that helps. Now, there was a comment on this and it says, do you think that being a therapist has made you a better person? Like that you've grown as a person from helping others or that you get insight from certain clients? When this, I was reading this and I was like, the short answer is yes. And I think a couple of things. Number one, working with patients and even being online, I'd honestly say equally, Being online and working with patients in my private practice over the years has given me hope as a human, not only for other people because the love and support that our community offers to one another is truly amazing and constantly just is motivating to me and totally inspirational. So there's that component. And so it reminds me of the good in people. But then there's also working with people gives you hope that like we can all overcome whatever we're going through because I've seen people go through all sorts of things and different levels. Even like uh people who thought that they could never get better. They were in the hospital forever with schizophrenia, trying to get things situated, or someone who had depression that was lasting for like 20 years and they just could never pull out and could never get resolution of their symptoms. And you see things happen. People have eating disorders and self-injury has been going on forever and they just don't know how to stop. Like I've seen people go through and weather all these different mental illnesses and life storms, trauma on top of trauma, and they come out the other end, and they live a full and happy life. And seeing that over and over, it just gives me hope for the future constantly. Not just for me, just for the world. I'm like, it might seem like shit now, but it can be better. People are good. People are trying. People are strong. We are resilient. Like, I'm reminded of that stuff all the time. And so I do think there there's that component, and I cannot... I feel like words don't even do that justice. But then when it comes to me, like helping others or getting inside or being a better person overall, I think being a therapist has allowed me to, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for. It's kind of like, it allows me to see patterns in life. So I, my tolerance for toxic or bad relationships or being mistreated has gone down. And I think that's a good thing. And it's also because I try to practice what I preach. I'm not perfect and I still struggle in my own life, but it's also helped me be a better communicator because I can see how important communication is. And I've seen it play out with my patients and with you, all of you online throughout the years. And so there's those things I think do make me a better person. It makes me a better partner in life with Sean. It makes me a better friend and a better daughter. I'm more communicative than I ever was and I recognize when I'm doing things that aren't helpful. And that's kind of part of being a therapist and also being in therapy over the years. Um, yeah. And then some patients will have aha moments of their own and then I will be like, oh my God. Like, cause I'll see some of myself sometimes in some patients where I'm like, oh yeah, you're doing that thing. Like, I used to people please too quite a bit and I still do sometimes, but like, so I'll see myself in them. And then when they kind of have realizations or when they work through something, I can sometimes apply that to me. That's not as common. I think because as therapist, Katie, you know, using air quotes, therapist, Katie, I'm not like my regular self. So I'm not really thinking about myself. It's all about my patients. And so that doesn't happen as often, but it has happened before. Now there's another comment that says, to add on to this, I've also thought of becoming a therapist, but I've done some internet research and I found out that the most common downsides of the profession leading to people leaving it is burnout or emotional strain and compassion, fatigue, et cetera, especially when not working in a private practice, as you may not have as much control over your caseload, hours, pay, paperwork, high expectations, et cetera, which does worry me as I may be a person who would easily stress out or burn out, especially as an introvert and a highly sensitive person. Got to be careful. Boundaries are important. Are there ways to prevent or deal with this so that I can handle it if I were to go into the profession? I know you've spoken about this topic and mentioned strategies such as self-care, but could you possibly dive into this more? Thanks for reading this whole thing. Of course. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, I I am definitely one of the highly sensitive people too. And so, and burnout and compassion fatigues is, is I can't tell you how many of my colleagues Especially because of COVID, no longer see patients or no longer work in general or trying to rethink and still are working, but are like, how do I get out of this? One of my girlfriends just the other day was like, I think I want to quit and become a farmer. (laughs) And I was like, that's fair. Um, So it can be overwhelming. And the caseload, it, it is tricky when you work. There's benefits, cost and benefits to all different jobs. Now, When it comes to being a therapist, working on your own in your own private practice does have benefits to the fact that like you get to decide how many patients you take on. However, the amount of paperwork and uh you know, super billing or taking insurance or whatever kind of stuff you're doing that way, that can be stressful. And most of us can't afford, like myself included, can't afford to have like a biller that you pay to do all of that stuff for you. And so you end up doing it yourself. And so for every every week, one of my days was just spent doing paperwork and so just you know keeping that in mind and making scheduling that time can kind of help but then there's the benefit of working for a clinic where when you leave work you leave it because you're not the one that's on call you're not the there's someone there like you trade off shifts it's like a relay race and so that's kind of nice cuz you get to leave work at work and when you take vacation you really get to take vacation whereas when you have your own private practice it's really hard to take vacation and actually unplug and be On vacation so those are kind of the you know cost and benefit but you can work more hours and have to see more people when you work in a clinic or let's say you work for like a Kaiser Permanente or something you can you get paid decently but you also have to see a lot of patients and there's not it's just not as nice as private practice because the continuity of care meaning like getting to see someone regularly and working through something until the end isn't always there. They often only give them like six or 10 sessions or they're only with you while they're in the treatment center and then they discharge or the insurance stops covering it and they're discharged. And so there's just, I feel like it's a little more disruptive when it comes to that. But anyway, so those are just costs and benefits and I could get into that a lot. But when it comes to being a therapist and being able to be a therapist long-term, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of you being in your own therapy, like start now. I'm so grateful that back in the day when I worked at the Center for Individual and Family Counseling in North Hollywood, that they required it. Now I was already in therapy, but I'd been on a break for a little bit because I think it was right before my dad died. So I'd been seen because he was really sick. And then I was like, I'm doing okay in managing. And so I'd taken a break and they're like, you have to get back in. And I was like, oh, Okay. And so I did, and thank God I did, because seeing patients and holding that space for them and like hearing the things you hear, it's really important that you have your own place to like take care of yourself and to vent about it safely and ethically, right? Because we have to hold people's confidentiality. And so that was really key. And then healthy boundaries. And I know a ton of therapists who don't do this. And this is my number one encouragement for anybody out there who's thinking of becoming a therapist please put together some kind of verbiage around what your patients can expect. Now, we have what's called informed consent, meaning I'm informing you of the rules and the practices and the privacy policies within my practice. You're reading them, receiving your copy and you're signing, right? It's just part of like the paperwork process. Now, That's all normal. And everybody does that. However, the one thing that therapists don't do enough of and something that I personally have tried to get better and better at over the years is communicating about contact in between sessions and what's appropriate and what's not. And I think it's probably because I deal with a lot of borderline patients who struggle with attachment and boundaries. And so it's really important and best for them if they know what to expect from me. And so I've gotten so good. Here's what I say to my patients now. I say something to the effect of, you know that I have a 24-hour cancellation. I used to have 48-hour, but nobody would abide by it, and so it's easier. 24-hour cancellation notice, meaning if you don't cancel within 24 hours, you are responsible for full payment of that session. Now, emergencies can happen. Please let me know ahead of time, and I'm sure we can work something out. So I let them know that's the rule. I'm flexible on it, right? Then there's things I'm not flexible on. I say, when it comes to communication between sessions... You are only, it's only okay for you to reach out if you're rescheduling or if there's an emergency. If it's something else, please write it down or print it out and bring it into your next session and we will address it first thing. Otherwise, I will not be responding. And I always tell my patients, I'm like, I prefer to not do anything over text other than scheduling. And I check my voicemail once every day. So then they know what to expect. So, and then on my voicemail, it says like, you know, I check my voicemail once every 24 hours. If you need something more quickly, you know, please call 911 or take yourself to the emergency room because you have to set these boundaries and those boundaries might seem petty or they might seem not that important. But I'm here to tell you that those simple boundaries, the contact and communication in between sessions is a lifesaver. That's why people burn out. They let people get a hold of them all the time. They uh, do little phone check-ins a lot. I don't do those unless I think it's very necessary because of suicidal ideation or something like that. And so just being clear about what's okay and what's not okay and what you're going to, what your response will be. And it's not me. I'm not mean. I'm not telling them like, I'm not here for you. If you have an emergency, you can reach out. I'm here. And if you need to reschedule, the sooner you let me know, the better. However, I only check my phone once every day like, so I'm not getting into like no back and forth. Right. And you know, I don't allow emails. I, sometimes I have allowed patients to email me knowing that I will not reply to their emails ever. I'll print them out, put them in their file and talk about them in session. So it's letting people know, I think just letting people know what they can expect. Then, sets them up for success. They they don't have any expectations that aren't going to be fulfilled. So you're not hurting their feelings or making them think that they're not important. You're telling them your policies of your office and that protects you and protects them and keeps the therapeutic relationship sound and healthy. Because I can't tell you how many, um, I've done a ton of these conferences and like continuing education courses with other clinicians about this, about the ethics of boundary setting and really in therapeutic relationships. And the I have never given one of these talks without having at least one person say, "Um, excuse me, but how do you walk it back if you've already overstepped and have unhealthy boundaries with a client? So know that you're not alone. It's difficult. But it's best if we just do it up front. And then all you have to do is just uphold it. So like when they reach out, you don't respond right away. If they're just texting about a, a schedule change, you can just say, hey, okay, I've got this time next week. Does that work better? Boom, done. Or... If it's an emergency, you call them back and figure that out. But anything else just sits and you do not reply because you already told them that you wouldn't. And so anyway, I could really talk about that, but I hope that that gives you an idea of how how to protect yourself because that boundaries are the only way to protect ourselves from burnout and compassion fatigue, as well as obviously taking care of yourself and like your personal therapy is going to be incredibly important. But let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, have you ever had clients explore their sexuality with you? If so, what did the process look like? I know I'm maybe interested in doing more work with that, but I'm also hesitant. What if I find out that it's not something I want or I let my worry take over and I back out? Subthought: I can't tell if I just haven't found the right guy, though I have felt some curiosity from watching TV shows and seeing new representation. But I for sure don't say the words dating girls out loud to anyone. Even in session, the idea of dating makes me nervous. So maybe it's silly to even start, I don't think it's silly to start. I think I have had clients explore their sexuality. I've only had like two, well, I guess kind of three, but mainly two that were, were kind of in that questioning phase where they did, weren't sure who they were attracted to, who they wanted to date, if they wanted to date. It was kind of this, I even had a, a client um, years ago who thought she was like asexual. She was like, I just don't think I'm attracted to anybody. And so we dug into that and I think... First, it's really important that you know your therapist is what we would call sex positive, meaning that they're like LGBTQ plus supportive or are part of that community themselves and you know open about it in their practice. You want someone who's like an ally who can be supportive and who can give you the safe space to question without any judgment. Now, I know therapy is not supposed to include judgment, but I also know there's a lot of religious therapists out there who maybe don't believe in the LGBTQ plus way. I don't even know how they would describe it. But you know what I mean? There's gonna be people with different beliefs, and some therapists can't keep their beliefs out of their office. And so it's really important that you find someone who you can connect with, where it feels safe to do this. Now, the process is more about giving you homework and asking questions about it. And I mean, I had a patient, my first patient that I ever helped with this. Oh, there's a great book. It's, it's in, I have two great books. There's, uh, they're in my Amazon shop. And I think it's like, LGBTQ teen, like how ways to support an LGBTQ teen and the others like how to be, um, an LGBTQ ally as a straight therapist. Those are two amazing books that I found incredibly helpful as, you know, as straight woman, how, how can I support? And so th- those are really helpful. So I can encourage you to read those. And those are in my Amazon store. So you just go to Amazon forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton and they're in there. But the The way that this process kind of works is I have had many patients just start writing about what they think. And the journaling component I know for a lot of people are like, oh, I don't like it. And that's okay, there are other ways. But this is one way that I find to be, and if if they don't feel like it's safe, let's say they live at home with their parents or people who are, you know, maybe homophobic or something. I always tell them to do it in a locked document on their computer and there's a lot of, uh, you know, diary kind of things out there that you can do. Or even just in your Google Docs, if you just like call it something benign and kind of hide it in a folder somewhere, you can do your journaling there. But I just really want you to feel like you have a space to to question and to think about it and to honestly just give yourself the space and time you need to, to consider because it's okay to consider and to question. We don't have to know. We don't have to... Um, All of a sudden, wake up one morning and be like, I'm gay, that's it, right? That's not how it works for a lot of people. And it's okay to just be curious. And so I want people to have the space to do that. So journaling is a huge component of it. Um, I, you know, really just give you the space and ask questions following up from the things that come up for you. Now, the discomfort over even saying dating and, you know, how it makes you nervous, I would be really interested in that. I would, as a therapist, I'm like, I wonder if that's, is that social anxiety? Is it some internal judgment or, you know, were you raised in a non-sex positive place where you didn't feel like it was okay for you to be you, you know, and kind of digging into that and like identity. Because the biggest thing about this time in questioning and why people struggle to come out and, and why there is higher levels of depression and anxiety in our LGBTQ plus people is that we can feel judgment around who we are and questioning our identity can cause a lot of anxiety, right? And if we've been judged or harmful, let's say we're in a community that's just not very supportive. It can be really, be really detrimental to our, our confidence and our self-worth and not to mention the fact that for a lot of, like a lot of my friends who are now have come out as gay and talk about how they like pretended to be straight for a while just because they lived in a community where it wasn't accepted. And, and that can really wear away at our, at our, identity and our, our soul kind of. I just feel like it's it's such a painful experience. And so anyway, I don't want to get into that too much, but the process is more it's like your process and I'm just there as the therapist to help guide and support and ask questions where necessary to help you come to terms with whatever it is. And again, there's no judgment, there's no expectation. You never have to come out if you're not comfortable, or you don't want to. And I, there's just so much that's like you Get to decide. For so many people, I think, especially in that community, it can feel like society has decided things for us. Like, oh, well, this is what you're supposed to do. This is who you're supposed to like. This is when you're supposed to get married. This is what's supposed to happen. This is how it's supposed to look. But this time, this process of you questioning and figuring out who you are, what you prefer, what, you know, who am I in general, that is. All for you to decide. And as a therapist, I feel like my role is much more backseat where I'm just letting you drive the car and just asking questions to keep us on the road so that you feel safe, that you feel supported, that you feel like any answer is okay, that any decision or non-decision is completely acceptable and that you're wonderful and great just as you are. And I feel like that's really my role. Now, other therapists might have a certain process they go through that's very regimented and much more structured I don't find that to work for me and for my patients. I feel like it's more for you to tell me what you're thinking and what you're curious about and have a safe place to talk it out without judgment. And I think that talking it out, sometimes I've heard from a lot of my patients, now that I'm just saying this out loud, I realize, you know, X, Y, or Z, I'm this way or that way, or I realize I don't really like that, or, you know, and so sometimes just having a safe place to talk about it that really is the most helpful. Does that make sense? And that's really what my process is, is to let my my patients lead it, ask questions as I can, support and validate as much as possible. I find that to be really, really important. And then get them writing, get, you know, talking about it so that they can come to terms with who they are and what feels good for them. And overall just support. So And there's a comment on this that says also, how do you decide whether to explore having a relationship or just continue without having one when your trauma history is holding you back? I've been trying to explore my sexuality in therapy, and I'm just so confused where to go with the info that I'm finding out about myself. I guess relationships don't have to be sexual in nature in order for them to be viable. I know a lot of people for some reason think like, well, if you haven't had sex with, if you're a man and you haven't had sex with a man, how can you say you're gay? That's, would you say that to a straight person? People are so stupid and ignorant sometimes. I'm like, no one would question me if I was a virgin and I was a woman, uh, you know, attracted to men, it was heterosexual people wouldn't be like, oh, because you haven't had sex, then then how do you know you're heterosexual? So, stop saying stuff like that, people. Okay. But anyway, so I bring that up because if your trauma history is holding you back from having a sexual relationship, that doesn't mean you can't engage in a romantic one. Conversations can be very romantic and very telling. And you can be, I think that allows you to kind of explore the dynamics of whatever relationship you're interested in. You know, if you're thinking that maybe you're bisexual or maybe you're gay or a lesbian or whatever, or however whatever terms you like to use. A lot of people like to use the term queer. If you want to engage in that kind of a relationship, you should be able to do so. And there shouldn't be pressure right up front to have sex. That's just, I know there is in general in relationships and things even as a heterosexual cisgendered female, I know that there is pressure to have sex, but I'm just telling you that you can explore relationships and get to know people and chat online and meet up for coffee without that. And I think that's what I would encourage you to do if you feel okay doing that. And if not, then there might be some more kind of like trauma work, whether it's like exposure therapy or maybe you're doing some EMDR or maybe we need to have some more resources to use when we do feel triggered so that we can get to that point. Because... It's okay for it to hold us back right now as long as we're working through it. and we'll get to a point soon as soon as we're supposed to in a time that works for us where we can engage maybe in those romantic relationships or go on dates or or consider having sexual intimacy with someone that we're interested in. And we can do that stuff. But know that you don't have to go this certain pace and it's okay if you're still thinking that you might be, you know, gay or bisexual or whatever and not have had a relationship with someone. You can still question and still consider what you think and what you feel without having that relationship. That's okay too, while you still you know work through that trauma that you feel is kind of holding you back. Does that make sense? I hope so. And I it, again, I always want to let everybody know, I'm doing my best to... To be careful and to be thoughtful with the words that I use. And if I said anything that was offensive, I apologize. Let me know in the comments how I can correct my behavior. It's never my goal to make anyone feel like they're not safe or feel judged. That's never my goal. My goal is so that all of you feel loved, supported, and understood. And I'm just doing my best to educate myself as I can. So if there's something you need to educate me about, I am more than happy to hear it. I'm not, uh, I don't get defensive, I'm not mad about it. I just want to learn more. So if I said something that wasn't correct, please feel free to correct me in the comments, okay? Now let's move on to question number six. And it says, hi, Katie. Recently, we've started inner child work in therapy. And I don't know if there's a universal way of doing this, but my therapist likes to work with an empty chair, I love this, that represents my younger self. Sometimes he asked me to talk to my inner child who is quote unquote sitting in the empty chair. And sometimes he asked me to sit in the chair and ask questions to the younger version of myself. I love this. I'm very down to earth, realistic and rational woman to say at least. I've tried to open up and give this experience a chance, which is a huge step. I can wholeheartedly say that I've really tried to take this seriously and give it my all. However, I cannot seem to let go of the fact that this feels extremely weird and a bit woo-woo, even though I know it's based on evidence-based practice. It is, it's true. We've tried this several times, but it doesn't have any result at all. Will this method be effective for everybody? No, it will not. I really want to get the the work done. So I was wondering if there are any other ways to get there. Any tips will be very much appreciated. I love this question because as therapists, our job is to come to the table with evidence-based tools and resources and therapeutic techniques that have been shown to be effective for whatever you're struggling with. Your job is to try them out. And then let us know if some of them are trash and don't work for you. And so this is one of those moments where you need to tell your therapist, hey, I really, really tried to lean into this like empty chair technique. And I know it's supposed to work for people, but I cannot, it is not working for me. Can we try something else? Because every therapeutic technique out there is going to work for one person and not for another. And that's why as a therapist, I don't really think it's ever beneficial for us to only work within one modality. You know, I only, meaning I only do cognitive behavioral therapy and that's just like rigid. And that's all I do because I'm going to be wanting one of my patients to try a certain tool or technique. And they're like, that doesn't work for me. And I need to have the wherewithal, the knowledge, the education to reach over into, I don't know whether it's DBT or whether it's like object relations therapy or schema and like pull out another tool and be like, Hey, how about this one? Does this one work? Can we try this one? And that's what you're going to ask your therapist to do. So push back and tell them very nicely. I'm really trying, but I just can't do this. It's not working because I personally, I love the empty chair technique, but it's only ever been effective for two of my patients. And one of them that was actually effective with was actually a surprise to me because we had tried some stuff in my practice when I saw her outpatient and it didn't, she didn't really like it. Then she went inpatient, and it was like the most effective thing for her. And she was like, I guess I just needed to like have a minute to like be in it. I don't know. So, you know, maybe at another time in your life, it could be effective. But right now, no. And the way that I go about this, so if that doesn't work, it's never my first line anyway. It is a little woo-woo for me too, is I have patients bring in uh photo albums, if they can find them of the ages of themselves at the times that we're kind of working on, like, let's say you were eight or 12 or something. If you can find some photos around that time, I have you bring them in. And I have you look at that photo and tell me a little bit about that girl or boy or, you know, whoever you were at that time, right? Tell me what they're going through. What are they thinking? And I, I do this in office so that when I, I, you know, when our session's over and you're going home, you are able to do the homework, which is writing letters back and forth. And I know I've talked about this a little bit with some of you over the years, but writing a letter to our younger self and writing a letter from our younger self to us can be really, really helpful. Also, another thing that can help if if that let's say let's say the writing letters is a little too mm, I don't think so. Can we look at a picture of ourselves at that age and can we just jot down some of the things that he or she was thinking and feeling? Can we do that? That's sometimes where I start too because sometimes we're just so disconnected from our younger self that it takes us a minute to get reconnected. And so those are just a couple other techniques that I would try that are maybe a little less woo-woo and hopefully can help you kind of get back in touch with that part of yourself. Um, Another that I've had patients do is doing some childlike things. If you have a child of your own, that's actually much easier. But if not, like, can we go play on the monkey bars a little or do something... Um, like taking ourselves to Disneyland because our dad always said he would take us and he never did. Are there things that we can do for our younger self that we would think are you know you know too childish now as we're adults? Are there things that we can do that way? That's some of that inner child work and healing too. but give those a try and I hope that one of those helps Now, There was a comment and it said, ugh, please answer this question. And also, same goes with the quote-unquote secure place. You can create a mentality um, for your, oh, with the secure place that you create a mentality for your inner child. Basically, you're supposed to be able to take it there when you feel overwhelmed. Gotcha, it's like your safe place, which also sounds very woo-woo to me. I really did try, but my brain works better with facts and understanding the symptoms instead of these therapist-y techniques. And please don't take this the wrong way. I just like clear, factual explanations more. I 100% understand and get that. And I'm kind of that way too. Although I do think there is a very important place for these woo-woo techniques, but if they're not working, they're not working, right? So this um, safe place or secure place that you want to take, uh, you know, go to when you feel overwhelmed, if that's not working for you, is there a mantra you can repeat that's really soothing? Is there a thing that you can do that helps you calm down, like shaking your body out? Like if you can just kind of shake it off your hands, sometimes that feels better. Are there breathing techniques that work for you? Some people hate those. Some people love those. Um, I like to do the four by four breathing where you breathe in for four, hold it for four, breathe out for four, and you do it four times. That can be helpful. Um, There can also be like silly putty stuff in our hands that we do. Um, I used to have a patient that would just write her mantra out over and over. And that was a way to kind of, it's a repetitive motion, which I've learned is soothing to our nervous system, but it also helped her like actually hear and absorb the words. That can be something that you do. There are a lot of ways to calm our system aside from imagining a safe place or like a, you know, go to your happy place. We don't have to have that. That's okay. There are other things that you can do that are calming. And so I would be just kind of curious. Try some of the things that I just mentioned and see what's calming or soothing. And if you find something that's particularly soothing, let your therapist know and make it something that's available to you in session or out of session or is is in as many places as you can because we really want to have... A bunch of different ways to cope no matter what the environment is. And so that's why I like the silly putty, like doing a little shake. That, yeah, this might look silly if I'm like out to dinner, but I bet if I just did this and then kind of adjusted my sleeves, nobody would think a thing of it. And so finding some things, or if I had to go to the ladies' room and shake into, you know, in the bathroom stall, I can do it there too. But just finding some things that you can do no matter where you are um, can be really helpful, especially in the therapy session itself. So I hope that that helps a little bit. Okay. Question number seven says, good morning, Katie. Good morning. I was just wondering, how do you push past the therapy hangover? Oh, interesting. I find that after sessions, I tend to stay in my head a little too much lately to the point that it usually wastes the day. Sometimes it's replaying parts of the conversation or processing over connections that have been made. Other times I find that I can obsess over something and I tend to dive into research. I wouldn't say we're working too fast with past trauma since that's kind of been put on hold and more or less working on feelings and recognizing them. I partially find that a lot of times I'm frustrated since it sounds so simple to feel and recognize emotions. It's not so simple, don't worry. But Yet I struggle with doing it so that my self-talk tends to go really negative. I used to be able to push past this, but why is it becoming more and more difficult? Okay, recognizing and feeling our feelings is really fucking hard. And almost nobody, I don't want to say nobody, but almost nobody does it regularly, even myself included. I can go a couple of days without actually acknowledging what's happening. Uh, Not days where I don't have to work. Like weekends are actually really good for me. But when I'm working, it's like I'm just doing my thing. Like I don't have time. I don't have space to like feel all the feelings. And I do it usually in the evening, you know, but again, I don't do it every day. So it's not easy. It sounds easy. It's one of those things that sounds really simple, but it's really hard. And so be patient with yourself. And what's happening is that because this is so hard and you're doing your best, you're like, fuck, you're like really trying to like acknowledge, identify, like feel the feelings. Like how do I do that? Ugh, do I feel angry? Ugh, like it, it can be really hard to even know how do I feel them, right? What does that mean? What does what does excited feel like? And then anger and why am I feeling this all at the same time? It's overwhelming. And because it's overwhelming and you're talking shit to yourself, you're getting a little anxious. You're a little overwhelmed. Therapy feels kind of overwhelming right now because it's hard. And because of that, we're kind of struggling with a little bit of OCD like behaviors. That's what this sounds like. Like when you want to, um, you know, replay parts of the conversation over and over. It's a little anxiety-based, uh, you know, doing your research, processing over the connection, you know, like you're you're almost uh, obsessing. It's like you have pure OCD almost, although there might be compulsions because you're doing the research, like the physical compulsions. But either way, you're doing some OCD-like things. And the best way to actually stop this, first of all, tell your, th- tell your therapist that this is happening. And then second is, if you can distract or put off doing the research or ruminating over, if we can just like, oh, I don't have time to think about this and do something else, if we can do that, if we can like thought stop and we can distract and we can prevent ourselves from doing the compulsion, I promise you that this urge will go away. And you might actually be surprised what comes up for you because I suspect that these urges to like overthink and over process and over research is distracting you It's like a defense mechanism that's trying to distract you from your feelings again. And so it's kind of coming up as a way for you to do something else that's not the feeling of the feelings. Does that make sense? I hope that helps. I know it's hard, but you got this. Now, there was a comment on this that says, yes, this is just like me. In addition, how can I not let this take over the rest of my week? I've been working on emotional abuse and therapy, and all week I feel so raw. But I can't talk about it with anyone because being a big... Uh, Because a big part of it has to do with my mom and I still live at home since I'm just 17 I've been journaling daily and my therapist knows that this is happening But I don't know how to cope for an entire week when the thoughts are too much to handle Well, if the thoughts are too much to handle Maybe the distractions and stuff can be helpful too But you might since your therapist knows this is happening Just try this out and let me know if this works Sometimes if we just have a little bit more downtime after a session, meaning that maybe we end our session, the tough stuff talk. session session's still happening for the full 50 minutes or hour and a half or whatever, however long your sessions are. But instead of just stopping at 50 minutes and like wrapping up real quick and going, maybe we have like 10 minutes or 15 minutes of kind of like come down time where we stop talking about the really intensive emotional abuse stuff and we kind of fade into more daily lighthearted easier conversation stuff so that we can move out into the world and not be overwhelmed. Does that make sense? And I think that that can sometimes really, really help us. And so having that time to kind of decompress or process and talk it out a little bit before you go into your life could be helpful. So I'd give that a try. And I do still think the thought stopping techniques and distractions will be helpful as well. Okay, with that, let's move on to question number eight. And it says, I loved your last conversation about shame. Oh, thank you. I'm really glad that was helpful. I was wondering if you could talk more about what I think could be called chronic shame and how to break through it with your therapist. Much love from Scandinavia. Now, this is obviously like a question that could be made into books, right? So many books. But when we have chronic shame, so shame that's happening all the time, and if any of you don't know what I'm talking about, Shame is like the belief that we're broken that like something inside of us is wrong like something's wrong with me. That's like shame. Like embarrassment is oh my god I can't believe I did that or I'm so I'm I'm so embarrassed that I did that or guilt is like I shouldn't have done that thing. I feel so bad about it. Shame is something's wrong with me. I something inside me is broken and that's why my whole life is fucked, right? That's how shame thinks and that's how shame acts. And so when we have chronic shame I really think the, the first step of this is acknowledging how, what role it plays in your life. Because we can feel like shame is everywhere and that might be true, but there's usually like one main place where it tends to hang out. Is this in your romantic relationships or your friendships? Is this in your work life? Is this in your school life? Is this at, at home? It, are there Where is it triggered the most? Where do you find those shame-filled thoughts getting the loudest? Because that's going to tell us a little bit more about where it comes from and help us slowly work through it. But that is like the first step. So once we kind of know, let's say shame comes up for us most with our mom, okay? Let's just say that that's it. Then I really would want to spend some time kind of digging into the dynamic between you and your mom. Like, okay, so it's triggered a lot there. What are some, you know, maybe not so good mothering messages that she's said to you? Like, oh, you're such a bad son or daughter or you're such an asshole or you, you don't respect me, you're so disrespectful and so rude. Like, what are the things that she has maybe said over the years? And can we kind of take note of those? And then what I would have you do is do some fact checking. We're going to, um, you know, go through them a little at a time. We're going to use bridge statements for how we talk to ourselves. And, and then also ancillary, like not to get, because I know this is a lot, but I just, I don't know where you are in your process. So I just want to tell you kind of like most of the things that I would do. And hopefully that helps. So paying attention to what triggers it, noticing maybe some of those messages we've received, checking our facts on those messages, you know, doing some bridge statements with the conversation that we're having with ourselves. And then like an ancillary thing that I usually have my patients who are struggling with something like this do, is I try to get them to build their confidence through mastery. And what I mean by that is I want you to try something new and I want you to get good at it. Or try something that you've already kind of done but maybe didn't put in that much time. I want you to get better at something. And doing that sounds so silly, but it helps us feel good about ourselves, helps us feel empowered and able to do other things. And so anyways... Those are just some of the ways that we can work through it with our therapist and just in our own time, some of the homework that I would have my patients do. And so I really hope that that helps. I hope that helps move you out of this kind of chronic shame space because I know how debilitating that can be and how just shitty that feels. Now, the final question is question number nine. It says, hello, Katie. Hello. It says, why does treatment sometimes make us worse? I've been in PHP and in inpatient. Both of them made my mental health so much worse. I know others who constantly cycle through. They get discharged, end up back in the hospital. And I've seen people in residential treatment who come out worse than when they started. And they end up having to go through it again. Why does this happen? Now, PHP stands for Partial Hospitalization Program. Those are usually like day programs where you go in to your hospital or clinic and then you go home in the evening in patients when you like stay there. Now, to be truthful treatment does make us worse at the beginning. And I have a couple of thoughts about this. So let's start with this one. Now, the reason that we can get worse before we get better is because when we first start challenging, let's say, our eating disorder thoughts or our suicidal thoughts or our anxious thoughts or depressive thoughts or whatever it is, we start challenging those maybe addiction urges. They get really, really strong there for a while and they get real mad. And it's like, because we're drawing our attention to this thing that we've been trying to ignore, it's like, oh my God, we realize just how big of a deal it is and how crazy it is, right? We realize just, oh my God, it's such a large thing that I'm dealing with and it gets really overwhelming. And so we get worse at the beginning until we have more tools, right? More resources, things to use, coping skills, and then we start to feel better. And so there's this period where it can feel really shitty and it can get worse before it gets better. Now, I also want to acknowledge that there are some treatment centers who just aren't good and it can be harmful to people and not actually helpful. And if we think that's the case, then we want to stay away from places like that. But I also want to say that because, at least in the States, insurances only want to cover like one month at a time or weeks at a time. So I'd be like, oh, you get two weeks. So we never get over that, that hump of it's feeling worse, feeling worse, feeling worse. We never get to that place where we start to feel better. We're not given enough time. And I know insurance companies are like, well, it's really expensive. And I'm like, well, if you don't let them continue, then they're just going to have to keep coming back and it's just going to cost you more money in the end, you idiot. Let people stay for at least three months just for starters to see how things go. Now, not everybody's going to need that amount of time, but I would prefer that they had it and then they could you know, leave when they're ready. And so that's why I think um, it happens most commonly. However, I do want to also acknowledge the fact that getting better doesn't mean better forever. I know this sounds maybe kind of depressing, but you know how we catch a cold and then we go to the doctor and we get treatment, an antibiotic or something, and we feel better and we get over it. That doesn't mean we're not going to catch a cold again. That just means we're better for now. And if we keep taking care of ourselves, like getting enough sleep, drinking enough water, washing our hands, all that stuff, then it's less likely that we'll get a cold sooner rather. Than, you know, it might be later. Or maybe we won't get one for quite a while, so much so that we're like, I don't remember the last time I got a cold, but we could still get it. And mental illness is no different. It's just mental health is just like physical health. And so if we feel better, we have to keep doing the tools and the things we were doing inpatient to keep our life feeling good outpatient. And it can be harder when it's outpatient because of life. And so the relapse rates are high when it comes to addiction or eating disorder behavior, self-injury, depression, anxiety. And that doesn't mean it's hopeless or helpless. That just means that we need to have consistent support. We need to have things that we can do that make us feel better. And we have to utilize those tools and resources so that we can continue to stay better, just like we would with our physical health. We're like washing our hands, eating well-balanced meals, drinking water, sleeping, right? We have to do those things for our mental health. And I think that's why people you know, bounce back and forth. And relapse rates are like, relapse itself is actually very common. And it doesn't mean we won't get better. There's a lot of chatter within, especially in the addiction realm where they're like, you know, you're going to relapse a few times before you get it right. And that's okay. And I tell my eating disorder patients and my self-injury patients, I'm like, it's okay. You're going to relapse. But that doesn't mean it's all lost. It's like, oop, we had a slip up. What did we learn from it? Let's move forward. It's not that big of a deal. And the more we can do that, the faster we will feel ourselves getting better and recovering. And so, yeah, those are my thoughts. And that's kind of why I think it happens. And hopefully that helps. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. Happy new year. I hope your new year is off to a wonderful start. I hope you're taking care of yourself. And like I said in the comments, if you feel so inclined, let us know what you're looking forward to this year or something that you're wanting to work on this year. Again, not really a resolution, so much as like a thing that you'd like to do more of. Let me know. Let us know in those comments so we can all support you and get excited for you. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye. you've hit a plateau, inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.